message you all <laughs> wow they're still messaging you it was it was an onslaught of hotep messaging that uh started at one and then it kind of slowly persisted throughout and uh i'm, I'm not responding anymore i don't blame you but i do feel like um every time i piss off a, uh, a hotep an angel gets its wings wow all right a lot of winged uh angels out there now <laughs> fly pelican <laughs> <laughs> Good morning to most, good afternoon to others, and good evening to viewing audiences across the pond. I am Jason Miles, your host for another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. If you're new to the channel, please like, subscribe, and if you're enjoying what you see, make sure to hit the notification bell so you are alerted whenever we go live. We're constantly adding new shows and doing cross streams with other channels all the time. Speaking of new shows, just yesterday... Uh, we did an impromptu stream in honor of the release of the influential and genre-defying hip-hop group De La Soul. They got to finally release their back catalog. Their back, what was it, nine albums, Tucson? Six albums. Nine albums. Nine? I, I actually don't remember. There's a lot of stuff. It's a not lot. just the first four. But it was a fun two-hour romp down memory lane for both of us. Sadly, the stream was taken down but it's currently on twitter and facebook for a short amount of time um, but we will have the stream up later today for patrons where patreon will keep it safe speaking of patrons last night we had our monthly movie night where we viewed the 1992 crime noir classic deep cover with larry fishburne and jeff goldblum after the movie we had a good chat and my house guest ben burgess live show producer jordan even jumped in to say what's up so if you want to be a part of this good time jamboree there's only one way come patron for as little as three dollars a month thirty dollars for the year you can have access to champagne rooms past and present movie night and you can sound off in the live audience for the mau mau hour with pascal robert speaking of all these people let me introduce if you hear the voice don't see the face Please welcome M. Tucson. Hello, hello. Good to be here. Good to see you. 
Also, please welcome my homie, my co-host, my dog. He is, for the most part, the curator of Moon Knight. Man of the Mount Mount Hour is the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. Phenomenal movie night last night. 1990s classic, Deep Cover. I I had a good time watching Deep Cover. I think I said this on the on the post movie night talk. I used to watch Deep Cover all the time whenever it came on cable, and uh, it just got to be too intense. You know, it's an intense film. It's a it's a very intense movie. Like you can't just. Uh, it's not like Boys in the Hood, where there's part you're just gonna laugh, right? There's certain parts you laugh. Um, like even to this day, you know. I don't just say why around my house. If someone's I'm like, I'm like, why? <laughs> What'd you do to Rick? <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> like of all the things I've seen in my life, um, I never saw anyone pick up someone that was shot and then take them to their mama house. <laughs> yeah, that's a little. Like I did that whole scene. I'm like, John Singleton. What part of South Central did you grow up in? You know, the suburban part. Well, apparently, because that's not why there's plastic on the couch. It is not. Mm-hmm. What did you do to Rick? My God. Oh, mommy, wasn't me. You know, so deep cover is antithetical. Even, even New Jack City has some parts in it that we laugh at over like when Chris Rock hits that crack pipe. Scotty help me, I'm gonna die. <laughs> help me, I'm gonna die. <laughs> yeah, that was the funniest thing. And it's like it was not supposed to be funny. Truly a testament to that man's talent. <laughs> I think he just dropped a new Netflix comedy special. I don't know if I'm Rock? interested in that. Well, I know he was recently on one of the doing the late night talk show circuit. Yeah, because he's got a new comedy special coming out. He was doing a tour with Chappelle as well. Wow. We got to get Pascal in a Molly Ringwald vintage T-shirt, man, says Luca DeCola. Molly Ringwald. She from Breakfast Club? Yep. Yeah, Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, 16 Candles for Keeps. All the movies of my high school years. Who were you in those movies? I feel like you were the James Spader character. No, no. It's really interesting. I was kind of between... In, in, in Breakfast Club, I was between the nerd and the jock because I was somewhat mm-hmm. athletic, but I was mm-hmm. also moderately geeky. Okay, you were, you were just geeky enough not to get shoved in a locker, is that what you're saying? Exactly, because I was kind of big. I was kind of muscular, so no one would mess with me. <laughs> Don't mess with that smart kid over there. <laughs> that ro- that, that Robert kid is a smart guy over there. He's kind of buff. That egghead's also a muscle head. <laughs> <laughs> Pascal just fucking up all 80s movie stereotypes. Yep. <laughs> and he's a black man with actual dialogue. <laughs> You're just okay. supposed to walk by. Revenge of the nerds. Oh, yeah, or be like an extreme character. And a rap by little old me, Lamar. 
Was he like the only black guy in 80s movies that actually got a chance to speak? Yeah, there was only one that was allowed, right? (laughs) I know in Real Genius, there's a black dude with a shag. And he has like two lines. And we can't count all the black custodians and like... uh, what do you call people that park cars? Ballet. Ballets. Do the, sure. the black ballet and Ferris Bueller have any lines? Thank you. If Eddie Murphy really changes the game in the 80s for black leading men. That's a really good point. You know what's really fascinating, though? And you talk about it on this in, in some of the specials you've done on... Uh, Mm-hmm. black exploitation movies is how in the 70s we go from this whole plethora of a diversity of black film actors roles i mean they're all within the genre of black exploitation barring a few but in the 80s you get the rise of reaganism and there's like one black actor mm-hmm. uh, richard pryor is kind of on the decline because he you know in the early 80s he burns himself up and uh you know, it's hard to get insurance when you have uh, actors that are literally going to light themselves on fire. So, yeah. you know, it's not even the drug problem. It's like, look, dude, you can't insure this guy if he's going to keep lighting himself on fire. And he stopped being a box office draw. Um, he had signed a massive deal uh, in the early 80s, lights himself on fire, has a bit of a success with that comedy album. Is it live from the Sunset Strip? He has two. He has Life from the Sunset Strip and Jojo Dancer, Your Life is Calling. You remember that That's one? That's a movie that he gets to do. So he signed a movie deal and he does these movies that just bomb. Moving. Um, I like the moving. <laughs> I know. I, but a motherfucking hell. Yeah. Um, with Stacey Dash, your favorite actress. My favorite. Um, and then he does a movie called Critical Condition where he's a doctor. Um, it's he's just not, these aren't really good scripts. He gets to do JoJo Dance, Your Life is Calling You, which actually doesn't do well at the box office. Um, so he's just not the draw, and the times might have changed on him. A certain humor that he was good for, which is kind of coony is gone because Eddie Murphy destroys it with uh, 48 Hours. 48 Hours comes out in 82, 83. I remember that movie. 81, 82, yeah. Yeah, Eddie Murphy jumps on Saturday Night Live real quick. He's not even on that long. Kind of destroys Saturday Night Live when he's there, does 48 Hours, and just takes off on a on a rate. Maybe you see with the Kevin Hart, but Kevin Hart was around for a long time before he blew. That's true. Dave Chappelle, long time before he blew. Eddie Murphy is like 20-something when he does. Oh, I think he starts Saturday Night Live when he's 18. He's like a teenager. When he's he really young. Really, really young. And, uh, you know, some people point to that scene in 48 Hours where he's like, there's a new sheriff in town. Yeah. Because... There's a seriousness in which he's doing the role, but he's also not physically imposing like quote unquote black leading men of the past. You know? And there's nothing debonair about him. 
like uh maybe you can say a Sidney Poitier or even a Billy D. Williams. He's These guys are like in there. He's slick, he's cool. Later in life, I mean as an adult man, but this is a young kid with you know a veteran actor like Nick Nolte just stealing scenes left and right, and not in the same way that someone like Chris Tucker does, mm-hmm. who's mm-hmm. also a young upstart. Um, that doesn't have the same trajectory because there's also this interesting maturity to Eddie Murphy where he can handle himself uh, in these in these scenes. Um, again, I, I would I would say go back and look at 48 Hours. I mean, it's definitely a movie of its era, but um, the bar scene really does set the tone. And by the time you get to Beverly Hills Cop, you know, forget about it. Forget about it. Forget about it. Say it, say it, Pascal, in your New York accent. Forget about it. (laughs) (laughs) Like when Pascal told me to watch, what's that movie? You People? You People, yes. I didn't want to watch it because, you know, I'm a fan of that era of Eddie Murphy. Like that is, I watched Raw way too many times. I watched Delirious way too many times. I know Beverly Hills Cop one two by heart. You know what I mean, I watched Best Defense, The Golden Child, like all those other movies. Golden Child with the oatmeal and the blood in it. <laughs> I said, I, I, I want the knife. <laughs> Please. Just loved all those movies and then as he got older i think he really really got to dig into the adult man and dig into his acting chops what was that movie was it dream girls he's in oh, dream yeah. girl. he was furious that he didn't get an oscar for dream girls because the scene where he does the drugs in front of his kid and and he doesn't say anything and he just makes that face oh did you like dream girls pascal I did like Dream Girls. I thought it was very good. Tucson, did you like Dream Girls? I didn't see it. Wow. All black How are you even black? It's just me and Ben not being black, not seeing movies. Like if Ben Burgess told me he didn't see Dream Girls, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. That that Mm -hmm. plays right. But you? Thank you, Bagels. Someone said Golden Child left me avoiding oatmeal for years. Did you know it's that the Golden true. Child is a little girl? Is that right? It's a little girl. She's a grown woman. Nice. I didn't know that. Great, great job she did. <laughs> really made you think she was a little uh a little a little bald uh Chinese boy. Very convincing. <laughs> well, look, I'm going to throw out something, a talking point for you guys while I try to find our guest. <laughs> I think she's having some problems with the link. Um, just to let you guys know, this is what we do here on Saturday. This is our Saturday free show where we go a little longer than our one hour format and head to the champagne room for further discussion. No, today. The champagne is on the house. 
That being said, before I bring in our guests, I wanted to throw a topic out to the panel and, of course, the viewing audience in the chat. San Francisco is planning to cut the staff of their emergency crisis response team. What could um, go wrong? What could go <laughs> Hilarity so, news. Yeah, you know, the world is just an episode of Three's Company, Tucson. <laughs> yes. <laughs> A bunch of misunderstandings. Um, San Francisco is planning to cut the staff of their emergency crisis response team. Instead of uh, calling law enforcement when you would be witnessing someone having a mental episode, the emergency response team can come out and de-escalate a situation. Last month, with no warning, the city announced that all mental health clinicians, this is from the San Francisco Chronicle, sorry. Last month, with no warning, the city announced that all mental health clinicians would be removed from the vans and replaced with emergency medical technicians. The clinicians could keep their jobs, but they would no longer respond to immediate crises. Instead, they would do case-by-case follow-ups with people after they saw, after the team saw them. In other words, San Francisco's only mental health first crisis response team will have no mental health professional on board. That means there is no one uh, on the van who can issue a 5150. That is the state code for an involuntary psychiatric hold if someone is in extreme crisis. Carrie Fenderson, a crisis response clinician who worked on a street team in 2021 and 2022, told the reporter that while some calls he responded to were minor, others were fraught, like the time he helped someone threatening to jump off a bridge. Once he got a call about a person driving in the pedestrian area of Golden Gate Park, who seemed to be trying to run people over. The benefits of having a mental health clinician available to respond to these types of emergencies seem obvious. Now, SF wants to pivot to doing more follow-up work with people but this really isn't an either-or situation. What do y'all think? I think it's a recipe for disaster, man. Hmm. Cutting, you know, those kind of crisis situations in a time where we're still stuck in a post-COVID precarity, uh, you know, decreasing economic mobility for large some segments of people. And, uh, you know, a lot of people economically downtrodden. It doesn't seem like a uh, formula for success. Am I missing something? Tucson? No. Um, <laughs> they want to do more follow-ups. Like, what does that even mean? How is that going to help us out? I don't know. Steve says something very, very interesting. He said, all cities are about to pivot to tough on crime policies post-COVID. I wish Steve was wrong, but I actually think his instincts are correct on it. Correct, yeah. I I think think. that, you know, uh, Eric Adams in New York is a a, uh, forecasting of what the future is to come for municipal governance in the post-COVID era. And I think that what happens in the Chicago election between these two uh these two candidates Vallis and uh, and Johnson mm-hmm. may be an indication of where things are to go I mean I know that Karen Bass won the election in LA on a more progressive agenda than her uh, real estate mogul opposition but at the same time I don't think that's going to be the universal reality across municipalities throughout the country because 
the crime issue is something that people are, are raising everywhere as a uh, bellwether of the political fortunes of uh, mayoral elections. Does it speak to something people want to see when it comes to the enforcement of laws and the feeling that you are safe? And in the immediate aftermath of a shooting, it always feels like the first response that kind of is across the board is we need more understanding law enforcement. We need law enforcement to be more understanding. Let's give them cameras. Well, that doesn't really work all the time. As we saw in, where was that? Memphis? Mm-hmm. Where they beat the bejesus out of that kid on camera. On camera. We see snuff films constantly to the point where most of us don't remember everyone's name that we see literally killed on camera. Yeah. You know, there was a person that I was seeing that would that worked in not direct, I guess she worked in a court system and she would talk about how she would see officers in an empty courtroom sharing their camera videos of them effing people up. So the camera doesn't really strike fear in the heart of the lawless renegade. Um, and, you know, we can talk about the psychology of, you know, who wants to be a cop. Uh, there's the great line in deep cover that kind of parallels with a line in the original Mad Max where, uh, Larry Fishburne says, all this time I thought I was a cop pretending to be a drug dealer, but in reality, I'm just a drug dealer pretending to be a cop. Mad Max says, the only thing that is really separating me from these roving hordes of, of bad guys is this badge. I don't really feel comfortable. I don't know if modern day law enforcement is really having that crisis of consciousness. It's not. But as we're seeing more high profile murders of people and more people are dealing with petty crime so to me it seems a little different than the 90s where the drug market is just so illegal that there's that much money to be made everything's a little different now there's People stealing scripts is a lot different than you know needing a large gang <laughs> for a distribution network for cheap cocaine that you're cooking down in a crack. It's, it's the scene is a little different. And to me, it's more dystopian today because we're seeing more petty crime go wrong. Um, more people are being displaced. I can't tell you what it used to look like leaving the studio. All the garbage cans on fire and people standing around them. Um, but I'd like to get your guys' response to that or, or opinion. This is a really interesting point uh, in line with what you're saying is that one of the things that drove the late 80s, early 90s cry wave was its correlation to crack cocaine and its sales and the attendant violence that came along with that. What's fascinating about 
post-COVID crime wave is that there's no particularly new market of dr urban drug sales that's mm -hmm. driving this, this this violence, but usually the violence has been correlated to quality of life crimes. So we have this attended increase in violence, but it's not correlated to any kind of really underground economic criminal activity. But at the same time, the quality of life is so desperate for large segments of the city that people are just resorting to all types of violence. You have the proliferation of homelessness. It's kind of, I mean, dystopian is an understatement. You know, there's this, there's this thing that happened in San Francisco where a lot of people got outraged and uh, a lot of righteous indignation. Um, there was a homeless person on the sidewalk and there was a man in front of his business and he was spraying down the sidewalk and he's and he was arguing with the homeless person he started just spraying the homeless person it was really cold the air is very cold in san francisco if you've ever spent time there and uh you know it it, it was effed up and the guy ended up actually getting in trouble for it someone recorded it the guy ended up let me get arrested for it um and there was a lot of kind of moral hand-wringing and, and a lot of outrage um, but business owners deal with homeless people daily and, and and i'm not look i'm definitely not justifying what dude did um but their dealings with them it's not fun it's often adversarial um often not that violent you know someone that's lived there um I've gotten my share, fair share of scraps with people. Um, but uh, it feels like people want to see the problem taken away and out of sight opposed to talked down off the mountain, off the ledge, if you will. Like, yeah, we don't want cops shooting um, unarmed black kids. Maybe we should have some different responses to that. But I don't really know if I want you talking, you know, the homeless guy down. I just want him out of my sight or her out of my sight. And while I feel comfortable. It, <laughs> sorry. While you're at it, just get rid of all these <clears throat> black kids anyway. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to see them either. <laughs> Since you're here. <laughs> right <laughs> don't be here anymore <laughs> so that I think there's definitely I'm sorry I cut you off um, I think there's definitely a feeling of precarity that people are projecting onto crime they're just calling it crime they have a sense that what they have is precarious um, and scarce. And, and there is a, just a general feeling of living as being mugged. What do you think, Pascal? No, I mean, th there is a tangible change in the quality of life post-COVID. I mean, I think that, you know, we do see crime statistics and data on the rise, we do see a diminution in quality of life, an increase of people uh, being evacu evacuated from their from their housing, housing costs going up, mm -hmm. homeless numbers going up. So, you know, 
it's not like it's just in people's minds. There's definitely quality of life factors as well. And plus, I don't think anyone's, anyone is really factoring how actually traumatic the COVID stay-at-home phenomenon really was for a lot of people as well, how it affected kids in schools, educational mm-hmm. outcomes, and a variety of other factors also is something that I don't know if we're even prepared to uh, calculate as a society. COVID never happened. In fact, don't even say the word. It never happened. Just go back to work. It's better for everybody. There are still people working. A lot of people are still working at home as a result of COVID. Right. Or they have a mixed schedule. Yeah, hybrid, hybrid jobs. Yep. Hybrid schedules. A lot of people I know in the PMC sector are uh are uh in that kind of uh in that kind of uh hybrid space i mean of, well, sorry go ahead no in terms of where their, their 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 work is but at the same time you know people who are not in that pmc kind of world they're getting you know housing costs are so high they're getting evicted from their properties with no kind of recompense or no kind of resolution. It's, uh, stuff is rough out there. It is rough. And no one's offering any real solutions. Sorry, I'm, I'm uh, jumping out because I'm trying to, you know, get the guests in. We're having some, looks like some technical issues. Uh, no one's offering real solutions or even temporary reforms, really. So big, big problems. Well, you know, part of the problem is the posture of the Biden administration is COVID is over. Stop talking about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he had the COVID relief, you know, bill that, you know, through sprinkled some, some, some money here and there, but the long-term consequences of this, this phenomenon, I think merit a much deeper, deeper, uh, policy consideration than simply the sprinkling of a few you know checks for twenty four hundred dollars here and there and that's it i mean i think we also should consider the positive things that stay at home uh policies gave us a lot of people got to sort themselves out they got to get off the hamster wheel and they got to have a look at their lives and maybe decide to spend more time with their kids or with their family. And these are some of the people who might be pushing to continue working from home. Going back to work is not popular. It's just not. So many people would prefer to be at home. Yeah. And life changed. We have to be honest. <clears throat> life changed during that pandemic. You know, Absolutely. Uh, if you got the ability to work from home and you don't have to commute, even if you'll make a little less money to stay home, don't have to commute. You can, if you have a child, you can manage your childcare a little bit better. You don't have to, you know, pick them up as late. That could save money. Lots of Uh, money. It's, it's working from home was a game changer, a game changer for a lot of people. But it also turns your house kind of into a 24-hour prison because now you know, yes. most people are on salary. Especially in California, you're on salary. 
you ain't getting OT. And the more you work, the less you get paid. Yep. Yeah. You're you're always going to be working once you decide that. And uh, certain people are going to fit in that work from home category. There's going to be some people that want to be in an office. Right. I think one of our our, uh, patrons on the Colin show talked about that, that some people want to be in an office and interact with other people. I get that. Who wouldn't want to be? I love interacting with people. That's why we do these goddamn live shows. Yeah, that's that's weird. Um, that's <laughs> your thing. <laughs> uh, a lot of the people that want to go back to offices are bosses. <laughs> Let's not I discount would, that. I would I would disagree with Smiles, that. Smiles. Did Just you have fun in the quote-unquote office? Um, no, I hate the office. Uh, I hate office politics. I hate office people. I hate. I'm not talking about the microwave. office. <laughs> you hate people to put fish in the microwave. Fish in the microwave. Can't stand it. Office coffee. <laughs> office coffee. Well, I spent some time in tech, so it's really good. Office coffee, changing the water cooler, trying to get one of the dudes in the office to change the water cooler for you, then getting three of your female co-workers to change it yourselves, then spilling water all over the floor. <laughs> Again, I worked in tech. It was way different. Every <laughs> every water cooler was uh, infused water at Square. <laughs> yeah. But honestly, yeah. A lot of people had home lives they didn't want to be around. Um, yeah, a lot of people had bad situations, and and work was an escape for them. If you if you live in somewhere like San Francisco or Oakland, and even if you're making good money and you got like four roommates, you probably want the escape of work. It's true. You know what I mean? If you have a bunch of kids, Paul Prescott is in the chat. Can we sh- shout out uh, Happy Birthday, Paul Prescott? Happy birthday. And and Paul goes, Jason had that woke water. Paul, yes, the water was woke as hell. <laughs> and it was delicious. I would go to different floors to see the different infusions of water. Changed oh. my life. Oh, wow. I didn't know you could put some of them things in water. <laughs> <laughs> That's the quote of the day. <laughs> <laughs> you can put herbs in this? <laughs> basil? You ever had basil, <laughs> strawberry, rosemary water? Oh my god! Wow. What it does to the skin? Pascal's like, I sweat that. <laughs> I sweat rose water. You didn't know Pascal pisses excellence. There you go. Our, Take our that, Mark Hill. <laughs> <laughs> So every so often people are like, you guys need to bring someone so on and debate. And then uh, my first re- response is like, no. <laughs> What's that? What is, you just want to see a fight, but not really. Like, that's why. Why don't you just go watch a fight? That seems way more interesting than watching two people yell at each other. Um, but damn, Paul is on one today. He said every sip eliminated <laughs> A hundredth of a percent of the racial wealth gap. Mm-mm-mm. 
Tastes like equality. Tastes like equality. Well, look, let's bring in let's bring in our our guests that are uh, that are very patiently waiting. And they're, <laughs> and they're like they're like Esperanza. What did you get us into today? <laughs> <laughs> Silly ass Negroes. <laughs> <laughs> I can Silly see them Negroes. in the virtual She's green room. <laughs> She's like, oh my God, I thought I was coming on a real show. She told me this is Mark Lamont Hill's show, and Brianna Joy Gray was going to co host. <laughs> <laughs> I did my hair for this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, you guys. I I warned you. I warned you guys. I was getting you guys ready for our guest. Um, I met Esperanza four years ago. Four years. I don't know. I met Esperanza a while ago uh, in Oakland when uh, she was in Oakland uh, working with DSA, and uh, now Esperanza is is back in her uh, native native land. Okay. Esperanza had warned me the first time she came on the show. She goes, You may get some emails from people or some messages. It was like two weeks of being called names with abbreviations. I'm still trying to figure out what they are. I'm a turf smurf. I'm a squirf herf. I'm all kinds of names whenever this woman comes on the show. Pascal, for some reason, never gets called the names. So he's he's part of this show as well. So if you guys want to call people names, <laughs> at P. Robert. Oh, my dude. Don't even do that. Don't even do that. But uh, Always have good conversations with Esperanza. Always heated. I remember JB when I said it last night. JB goes, "Oh, Esperanza's coming. Should be good." She brought a crew. Looks like gang shit in the green room. I can see him ready. So please welcome. <laughs> coming all the way live from a secret location, Esperanza Fonseca. Hey Pascal. Hey Jason. Wow, what what an introduction! You <laughs> you scared me for a second. Telling me some names were going to be on that last conversation I had was a bit contentious. No, no, no. I'm giving you a hard time because that's what I do. Now I don't know your crew. Um, I didn't get to meet your crew uh, last night. We had a, we had a quick impromptu phone call. And um, is everybody having technical difficulties? I can't even talk. Is everyone having technical difficulties? Somebody switched their camera around and is showing the wrong part of the room. <laughs> you not uh, you got to switch it around because you're showing the wrong part of the house. <laughs> yeah, Esperanza, real quick before you introduce your crew, tell us what you've been up to. Yeah, so I think since uh, last time we've been on, um, mm-hmm. you know, 
a group of us, two of whom are joining me today. We are focused on uh, building a new organization, one that's firmly rooted in, you know, proletarian feminist uh, ideology um, and focused on, you know, organizing people into a class-based movement um, for socialism. And so pretty excited to talk about that. Okay. Um, aside from political work, just hitting the gym like always, you know how it is. I thought I did until I saw some of your gym pictures on Instagram and I'm not fucking with you. I was feeling good about myself and my body transformation and then uh, your Instagram popped up in my feed and I was like fuck this shit (laughs) (laughs) I'm all thinking I got legit gains (laughs) well do you want to introduce everybody who who we got here at Esperanza yeah, so uh, we have Gigi, who is from San Diego. Uh, oh, she Gigi. is a chemist and also a longtime organizer. And so you want to introduce yourself, Gigi? I mean, sure. I think that was already all-encompassing. But yeah, I'm Gigi from San Diego. Um, been organizing with a or, or you know, with um, all almost two, three, three years, mm-hmm. and then did a little bit of student organizing. Um, yeah, yeah, it's not. Are you, are you guys, is it, I think your audio's cutting out a bit, Gigi. Can you guys hear? Is there audio cutting out for you, Pascal? A little bit. Okay, little yeah, your bit. audio's cutting out a little, Gigi. Okay. And we have someone else that's hiding their face. Who else do we have with us today? And then we also have Jackie, who is also an organizer uh, here with me in Los Angeles. And Jackie is showing the wrong part of the house as well. <laughs> Between Gigi and Jackie, where did you find these old people <laughs> with camera phones? I swear I'm a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> she just wanted to have um, an entrance so ah that's what it was okay Can fabulous you, you can't reveal everything all at once that's what she said <laughs> did she I'll tell that to the IRS <laughs> <laughs> well I didn't mention she worked for the feds yeah <laughs> I forgot that caveat. <laughs> so, Gigi, you're in San Diego? Yeah, yeah, I am. What part of San Diego are you in? You, you, you're, you're cutting out. Is your thumb oh over God. the thing? Well, maybe I have my AirPods. It's a thing. It's a thing. And, Jackie, you're with Esperanza and SoCal. I'm in SoCal. That's right. Mm-hmm. Are you trying to go to the yeah. gym with Esperanza? Because that's I'm trying to, but I'm I'm getting myself there mentally first, and then, you know, that's where I am in my gym journey. Yeah. <laughs> the leg, the leg game is on a whole nother level. Yeah. So you want to talk about feminism today, Esperanza Fonseca? Well, contemporary I'm, feminism. I'm down to talk about anything, but you know, given some of the things that we've been through recently. Um, you know, I think a critique of the women's movement, of the feminist movement, 
and it's, you know, what it needs or what I, what we believe it needs to get back on track could be an interesting conversation. What is knocking it off track in your opinion? I think uh, primarily the class collaboration in the feminist movement, as well as the embrace of liberalism, um, is really shooting itself in the foot. It leads to, you know, the defanging of its own movement. So, for example, you know, you look at movements against sexual violence, um, the Me Too movement, you know, not taking up certain cases, for example, or, you know, not being able to carry these campaigns out to their finish because of class collaboration politics. Tucson, did you want to add something to that? I'm going to try to help the Gigi real quick. Sure. Well, it's an interesting moment that we're in. I mean, do you feel like Me Too is alive and well now, or are we like sort of post Me Too? Um, I feel like the movement has really died out. And I think that's also, you know, part of the problem with a lot of these movements is that, you know, um, Jay Malfawad Paul, he is a philosopher in Canada and he calls this movementivism where, you know, it's this idea that we all just need to build these movements against our perceived oppressors and somehow they will, you know, equal something greater than the sum of their parts. And what I think ends up happening is that we build these disparate movements and they end up fizzling out individually and they never become more than, you know, they never equal anything like the sum of their parts. And I think that's one of the reasons we need a much more organized uh, class-based movement that connects all of us rather than the struggle against sexual violence is in silo from the struggle for this and the struggle for that. Esperanza, let me ask you a question. One of the things that I found interesting that you started with this with the, our conversation is that you talked about class collaboration. And one of the things that I find fascinating is that, you know, as someone who's a student of Black politics and Black political history, is that the same phenomenon occurs when you move out of the 60s into the post-civil rights era where you have the development of what we call the black political class, which ends up really becoming class collaborators with the political establishment to maintain a kind of status quo kind of politics. Do you think it's inevitable that whenever you're dealing with politics rooted in an identitarian mechanism, whether it is, whether it be black, whether it be woman, whether it be gay, whether it be trans, that eventually there will be a class of individuals within those various identity groups that will become collaborators or compradors with the ruling class and that the whole nature of quote-unquote identitarian uh organizing is fraught with the reality that it does not resolve the ultimate class issue of members of those respective identities absolutely and you know i, I would love to hear Gigi and jackie also talk about this but in my opinion that's the core problem with identity politics-based movements. You know, there's nothing wrong with organizing against uh, gender, sexual oppression, oppression based on disability or national and racial oppression. But when those movements are not rooted in a class analysis and a class stand, then inevitably what happens in a class society is that those movements end up, uh, you know, being steered in the direction of primarily benefiting those in the upper class, those in the ruling class, the current order of things. 
And that's why, you know, I think for us, we stand for a feminism, for a women's movement that is firmly rooted in class politics, that sees capitalism and imperialism as the enemy, and that understands that there is no separate patriarchal class. There is no separate cisgender class. There is no separate able-bodied class. The enemy of all of us is the capitalist class, right? That minority of rulers in our class-based society. Um, and that needs to be the starting point for our analysis. And yeah, I'm curious, Jackie and Gigi, what you know you also have to say. Yeah, like um, identity politics is a very, you know, it's a very one-dimensional, superficial um, lens. And what we see in our movements is that people cling to these identities as if the identity itself is revolutionary. You can't extricate uh, someone's identity from their from their class analysis, right? Like, because your identity doesn't mean shit in under capitalism. You can you can be all these um, you know uh, oppressed identities and mm -hmm. still like like y'all are saying, still collaborate with the capitalist class, with the ruling class. And what we're finding in the women's movement, especially, is that women are hiding behind these identities to justify capitalist bourgeois behaviors. So this is an interesting conversation right now because we're getting into a realm. So a, a friend of mine, friend of the show, wrote a book recently. His name is Norm Finkelstein. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Norm. If not, you you should. I'll, I'll introduce you, Esperanza, after the show uh, via email. I think, I think you would... Uh, get along with norm if you don't know who he is um he wrote a book called uh, i'll burn that bridge when i get to it and he definitely goes in on identity politics real hard and another person that comes on this show a bit that uh, goes in on identity politics is uh the great adolph reed uh, who has written chapter and verse about uh, identity politics and kind of the limitations of would you say that in this contemporary quote unquote left we have, and we'll just throw everything in there, right? We'll throw everything in the left. Liberals, suckings, whatever, whatever you want to identify with politically, we'll throw you in this contemporary left. Would you say that a lot more people cling to identity fights because they can have moral victories and there is a bit of a financial gain I mean, we've seen um, multiple people lying about their ethnicity. We really don't talk about it that much uh, in academia, but a lot of people pretend to be native. I mean, maybe the most famous is Elizabeth Warren. Um, Pretendians. 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 <laughs> Pretendians. I like that. But, but wow. seriously, what, how does that feel? How does that feel when you're trying to actually organize people to have real substantive change? And Esperanza and I have had long conversations, even on this show in real life, about sex work even and poverty and how those things coalesce. And it's sometimes it's hard to have those conversations because then the identity fights come in to play. So how are you guys navigating this with what you do? Um, 
because I, I I won't stay the show, but Esperanza, you were on a show not too long ago. Where... <laughs> <laughs> I won't. We don't have to, you know, name names or bring up exactly what happened, but e that even came up again. And yeah, which I want to address. We won't I name names. Not... Okay. <laughs> Hold on. Let me say this. Okay. So look, the individual in question was very concerned with allegations from random Twitter activists that she was transphobic. And I felt like I was being put in a position to uh, either defend her from claims of transphobia or explain why certain trans people online that I don't know were calling her <laughs> transphobic. And my whole thing was just like, I don't care, you know, grow in, I am called the time. It's just a part of being an online person and talk about something more substantive. But it just became this weird debate, and it honestly made me not want to be involved with left media anymore because I felt like it was just so opportunistic. And I'm not an entertainer. I'm not here to entertain people. I'm here because I have a very short time on this earth, and I want to give capitalism and imperialism and its ruling class the strongest blow that I can before I'm off the earth. And some people, they want to be entertainers. They want to be media personalities and that's fine, but don't invite someone who's serious about what mm. they do on to go talk bullshit. Can I say that? Sorry. But you yeah. can say bullshit. And I, and I feel hurt that you're making fun of my entertainment. <laughs> God damn it, Esperanza, I'm entertaining. <laughs> And uh, mildly amusing, and you're only a couple hours away. Don't make me come see you in these streets, okay? I don't care if you've been at the gym. <laughs> but, but, but seriously, um, I, I actually appreciate that because, you know, I don't want to get into the whole, you know, meaningfulness of online debate and online media culture. But um, you were a bit of a presence for a minute in Twitter spaces and then you left the, the medium altogether, right? Because you're yeah. serious about doing actual work. Well, the thing is, I don't think you have to be off Twitter if you're serious about doing the real work. But for me, it was just becoming too much of a distraction. You know, people love to become fixated on you, run these weird campaigns against you. And, you know, I'm just going to let people say, like, I think like Mark said, he's like, I really don't care what the public says about my work. I'm, you know, just going to keep doing it. And like, personally, I don't care what public opinion says. I'm just going to keep doing my work. And Twitter was just becoming too much of a distraction. But, you know, on your earlier question, I do believe that, um, you know, part of the problem with the focus on identity politics, and I'll say class devoid identity politics, because I don't think... Um, theorizing or organizing around racial oppression, gender oppression, et cetera, is, a, is, is bad in and of itself. I just think it needs to be rooted in a class analysis, right? Um, and I think that part of the problem is uh, that it creates fertile soil for opportunism to arise because, you know, for example, you have this epistemological claim that I, for example, can say, if we're going to talk about trans issues, none of you have any right to say anything meaningful on the topic because you're not trans. But we know that's not true. You have a mind.
Uh-oh. Of a brain, mm-hmm. you cannot. So I think that, you know, mm-hmm. these class word identity politics creates fertile ground for opportunism to arise and also for people to make arguments not based off of reason, not based off of evidence, not based off of a scientific materialist understanding of the world, but simply because I identify as this, therefore you have to listen to me. And that is extremely dangerous and problematic and allows for people who can just adopt these identities to come in and derail movements in service of the bourgeoisie in service of capitalism. And I know, you know, Gigi, you've talked about this too. I'm not sure if you have anything to add, but. Camera's on you, Gigi. Can you hear us? Yeah, can you hear me? Okay, are we good? We can kind of hear you, you're cutting out a little bit. Um, some people were joking that we have leftist, uh, we have leftist uh, Wi-Fi connections today. Um, <laughs> that's like for real because <laughs> you know, you know what's funny? I was like this close. I was this close to being like Esperanza. Why don't you just come down here and we do it this show live since you're so close? But we also have leftist gas money. <laughs> that's, that's a thing. That is a thing. Um, but so how do you organize around that when it feels like these identity and the, the epistemological, uh, statement, I think is, is really strong. Pascal, do you want to add something to that? Cause this is kind yeah, of, I, I, all the time. I'm one of the things that I find really, uh, problematic about the whole concept of quote unquote organizing and movement and left spaces is the role in which foundation capital philanthropy and the nonprofit industrial complex helps reduce any type of purported radical activity to really a means in which capitalism can social engineer so-called left politics within the actual mechanisms of economic and capitalist hierarchy so you know i would like you guys to talk about your experience in dealing with how the nonprofit and industrial complex in the foundation world helps uh, capture the politics of capture, economic ca- capture, left organizing in a way that really makes it uh, not as productive as possible. Yeah, definitely. So Lenin writes about this in uh, Imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, right? He, t- he writes about how in the imperial core, which is where we are, we have a surplus of capital because you know we've been extracting from the peripheries. And because we have this surplus capital, we have what is called like unionism, nonprofit. We, through these uh, structures, institutions, it assuages people from more revolutionary action, right? So we're gonna give you, uh, we're gonna give you some union benefits. We're gonna help you out through this nonprofit that kind of funnels all the revolutionary activity into these institutions. Instead of having more revolutionary um, institutions in uh, in themselves, right? So because we have the surplus capital in our in the imperial core, it it um, it uh, it um, like pacifies people from the, they have you know we got we have our crumbs, right? So therefore we're not gonna make any bigger moves because we're, we're content with these crumbs. And, and Lennon writes about how, you know, and, and I think we can still be pro-union in the process, right? Mm-hmm. But 
understand that it's just a step, that it's just a step in the bigger picture of revolution. Mm -hmm. But I guess that's also part of the question is for a lot of people, what does revolution look like in the contemporary sense? I mean, this isn't, you know, 1917 in Russia. This isn't, uh, you know, 1865. So what does the contemporary revolution look like in your opinion? Well, Jason, I would argue that, you know, one of the problems with the left in the U.S. is that mm. I think due to just ignorance, but also some American chauvinism, we ignore active and ongoing revolutions. For example, you know, the longest active communist revolution in the Philippines, uh, as well as in India, you know, um, there's also movements in Turkey, right? Uh, other places, we ignore these movements at our own peril. You know, there, I know that a lot of people, um, you know, they say, oh, like, we're not uh, in Russia, we're not in revolutionary China back in the day, like, mm -hmm. you know, revolution has to look different. But in what, what example in history has ever shown that a ruling class will give up their power by choice, or that a ruling class will allow themselves to be voted out? I personally, don't believe that is really a tenable idea. Mm. Um, and so I don't believe that revolution is necessarily going to look that extremely different from how revolutions in the mode of production have looked throughout history. Um, but I also briefly just want to go back to Pascal's point and say that regarding the nonprofit, you know, capture of movements, I think part of the reason it's so um, terrible is because, you know, these nonprofit leaders, no matter how, you know, genuine they are about the movement, at the end of the day, it is a job for them. And their careerism is always going to come before the needs of the movement. And when you are a nonprofit, you are funded by the very class that you're organizing against, perhaps just the nicer faction of that class. Um, and that is always going to stifle a revolutionary movement. And that's why nonprofits and their leaders can never be the leaders of a revolutionary movement because they will always capitulate to capitalism at the end of the day. Is it wrong to think that these people should even be part of any quote unquote revolution? Because it seems like a lot of the roles of nonprofits is to mitigate harm by capitalism. You know, I think there's definitely an argument to be made that they shouldn't, but I also think that there is room for people in nonprofits, for organizations to join revolutionary movements, but they simply cannot be at the forefront of it. You know, for example, in the Philippines, you might see um, some nonprofits, but they're not leading the revolution, right? Like they might serve the people, um, mm -hmm. but they support the aims of the revolution but nonprofits can never be in, in, in leadership of it. And for example, we saw this in Oakland with the movement against police brutality, right? And we see these contradictions in LA, we see them play out everywhere. When you talk about Oakland, are you talking about the letter where they wrote when they said, please don't fire the cops? Yeah, uh, we've definitely talked about that on this show uh, uh, several times. Uh, I, I don't get too, I, I kind of look at nonprofits, it's a mixed bag in my opinion, and I think we probably both agree that uh, the role might be one of quote unquote harm reduction, invert, you know, I'm using inverted quotes there by saying that, um, mitigating some of the harm of capitalism because of the way we're structured on a government basis. And even 
And the thing about looking to the Philippines, in my opinion, we're talking about an archipelago of islands. So the setup geographically isn't the same. Um, so not to belittle any sort of struggles against capital. I mean, we have to be realistic. They've still have problems in Manila. Bong Bong Marcos is president. You know, so I guess the bigger question is you can fight off some things in the hinterlands of somewhere, Kerala, parts of the Philippines, Chiapas, but ultimately, does revolution have to be violent, A, and how do you overthrow capital when you have the internet <laughs> and I mean, endless porn? I mean, you also need a, a people to, to care. I mean, when you ask, <clears throat> does revolution have to be violent? I think the question is, at what point has the ruling class not attempted to completely obliterate people who mm -hmm. have attempted to build a society based on equality and justice through peaceful mm -hmm. means. I mean, mm -hmm. if we could build a society on equality and justice and socialism through peaceful means, I mean, that would be the absolute best way. But in what sense would the ruling class ever allow that? You know, I, I don't, I personally don't believe that there is ever a situation in history in which a ruling class has allowed themselves to be peacefully overthrown. Well, I mean, I, I agree with that. Is that you know, the state and the capital would not allow itself to be overthrown without without bloodshed? My my, my only uh, my only reservation is that when we talk about revolution, is that where are the cadre who are dedicated themselves to overthrow the state and capital? You know, revolution is something that is not you just throw. It's not like a T-shirt you put on and say I'm down for it. I said, okay, let's down. Who exactly has the the worldview, the ideological infrastructure, the actual training, the mechanisms prepared to deal with providing goods and services for people in the society, even if the revolution was successful, who has the vision and the capacity to prepare to be prepared to say that we are actually going to challenge both the state and capital. So for me, the question becomes is that, you know, just simply talking about revolution in itself is not is for me, it, it's an ideologically aspiration. My question is, how do we build people to actually look at what I'm more interested in, a vision of a new society, looking at a way in which we actually envision a world in which we can have that kind of equality and equity you're talking about? Because my position is, is that one of the, the revolutionaries who I actually admire the most is Amilcar Cabral. One of the things Amilcar Cabral said is that we're not doing this for fancy ideology or phrases. We're doing this to make the material lives of people better and to improve the quality of people's lives, not simply for the sake of slogans. And my, the position I'm making is not that you know we should avoid revolution. The position is that we should always focus on understanding that the goal here is to improve the quality of life of the people we know that are suffering under capitalism, imperialism, and all of these other forms of exploitation and extraction. And one of the problems I have is when we just say, you know, revolution, revolution, one of the things I have to realize is that, listen, social democracy and, unif and uniformed healthcare across the board will go a long way 
to improve the lives of a lot of people right now. If we had actually, you know, certain types of reforms that were implemented in this problematic capital system that does not stop us from making more radical demands or pushing more mm -hmm. radically, I think we cannot deny that on the road to a more radical revolution, if you will, the things that we need are to envision a society where the needs of our people on a day-to-day -day basis are met with the requirements they need to do so. And and I, and I want to and I want to say I'm sorry, Pascal. I do want to say, you know, before we go, because I don't want this to get too back and forth about ideological uh, conversations about revolution, because the women on the screen right now actually do real organizing work, and uh, actually, and and not just you know, it's not just Esperanza at the gym getting ready to fight cops. It's uh, <laughs> but it is that too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just real briefly, Jason, yeah, I did yeah. want to say like, you know, for example, I think um, I'm not against organizing for reform. So like, for example, Gigi recently organized for reform, right, um, mm -hmm. in San Diego. And one, um, personally, I think like, you know, when I was talking to Ray, who is an organizer from the Philippines, you know, mm -hmm. she talked about how an important demand is, you know, instead of sending your money, instead of sending U.S. money to go, you know, um, occupy sovereign nations with military bases and, you know, fund war across the world, we should be demanding that money be used to fund healthcare and education. I'm all for that. But I think that our ultimate aim does need to be focused on a revolutionary transformation of society. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think that party building, building a real communist proletarian party and two, developing a real class analysis of the United States that goes deep and is comprehensive are extremely important. Yes. Can we talk a little bit about what Gigi was able to do in my neighboring city, San Diego? Yeah. What, what city are you from? National city? I'm from Oakland, California. I'm from the town, oh. Gigi. Okay. Oh, I live in Mexico. Okay. I live okay. in Mexico. Oh, nice. So I'm I'm down Good the road. <laughs> I'm down down the <laughs> road. My mail my mail comes. In, in San Diego. Yeah. Not really. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> form that um, I recently just got passed was for San Diego Unicom to one force them to start even. Um, <laughs> Hold on. Okay. Just okay. Hold on. Sorry. Is this a little bit better? Is, is that more clear? We can't. Sure. Same. It's this. Hold on, Gigi. <laughs> Poor thing. <laughs> I think I have a way. I think I have a way to do this. Um. Hold on, Gigi. Uh, Esperanza, talk a little bit about what Gigi did, and I'm gonna I'm gonna hook Gigi up. I figure I figured something out. To be honest, I think that Gigi would be able to describe what she did in better detail. I haven't been too plugged in, um, but aside from her political work, she also is a chemist. She makes COVID tests. I don't know how y'all feel about that. Wow. It's a valuable skill. It is. That's very, very cool. Yeah, she's amazing. She's a... 
It's a very valuable skill. So what exactly, I want to ask you guys, as people who are actual organizers dealing with the masses, the proletariat and people in the streets, what what are some of the uh, major obstacles you're seeing to dealing with working class people and radicalizing them to even understand that there are structural mechanisms like quote unquote capitalism, like quote unquote the ruling class, like quote unquote institutions, you know, you know, that are uh, obstacles to them being able to live a humane quality of life. Do you find it difficult to to uh, open their ideological horizon to where they even want to challenge the status quo? I'd like to hear some of your experiences in actually dealing with working class people in their spaces. What kind of people do you do? Do you deal with people in unions, non-working people? Are you dealing with lumpen folk? Are you, you know, what exactly are the uh, the actual experiential uh, uh, narratives that you're dealing with with the folks you're organizing? Um, so me personally, I've organized with, um, you know, in incarcerated folks, formerly incarcerated folks. Um, I work in education, so I'm in, uh, in an elementary school. And what I see, what I find in, in, um, is that we in, in the U.S., in the West, we have the strongest, some of the strongest, most effective propaganda promoting uh, a fascist settler colonial state and countering that is just no no easy task um so what i've seen is that the lumpen like like you were um talking about pascal is um extremely reactionary and, and by design but that doesn't mean that we can't that does not mean that we cannot um educate and 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 um challenge and and show people because i've also had the experience of of the lumpen of proletariat of reactionaries coming full circle um so yeah it's a big it's a big job that i think starts everywhere you are everywhere you are with with any type of of person is is starting the, that conversation and kind of you know like they say uh planting seeds um but yeah i don't know if, yeah, you know, I think that another problem and, you know, without naming names, um, this is something that I believe we experienced in the former organization that we were a part of. But, you know, a lot of people talk about organizing, but there needs to be real organizational support and strategy put into organizing. So one example is, you know, you can't just put up an online flyer and say anyone who wants to join, join, you know, that could be a part of the strategy that's casting a wide net, right? And inviting people from different places geographically dispersed to join. But in general, right, you need to be reaching the people who are not already following you. Um, you need to figure out which geographical areas you want to organize, which sectors in those areas are most important to organize. And then you need to systematically go out and recruit people. And that sort of structure-based systematic organizing is a lot harder than just simply anyone who wants to join, join. But in my experience, when you do the latter and you just say anyone who wants to join, join, you end up getting a lot of nonprofit people, a lot of what you might call PMC 
activists. Um, although I'm not sure I agree with that label, but regardless, right? Like, you know what, I, what we're referring to. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a problem because then it influences the class politics of the organization. And it also stifles you from building, you know, local sort of uh, strongholds or power. Um, and so I think that, you know, that's part of the, the problem too, is we need real organizational support and strategy behind organizing. And a lot of things are called organizing that are not really organizing. Well, speaking of organizing, I was able to get, I fixed our problem with Gigi. So Gigi, can you hear us? Yes. Can y'all hear me for real? Can you? Yes. Yes. Everybody can hear Gigi. Everybody can hear you. Yo. Finally. We we fixed the problem and, uh, and Gigi and I got to have a little off air conversation where she admitted the truth about San Diego, and I'll tell Tucson Pascal that off air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the truth buried by the deep city state. <laughs> but Gigi, nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to talk. I we're look. We can't talk about it on air, Gigi. We're, is there poop on the street? Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> Come for me. <laughs> She she said the truth that nobody wants to look. We won't talk about that. But Gigi, let's talk about seriously. What were you able to do in San Diego? What, what work have you been doing? Yeah, so the work that I've been doing in San Diego has been to address the sex trafficking epidemic that's plaguing our city. Mm-hmm. So um, human trafficking, sex trafficking generates about a hundred and or excuse me, not a hundred, eight hundred and ten million dollars annually. Um, in the underground markets uh, in San Diego with a big driving factor of that being is the presence of the border and, you know, the insane militarization of San Diego um, County. Uh, And in fact, uh, let's see, last week, I think, there was a huge bust in National City Mm -hmm. um, right there off Main Street, which is pretty close by um, the Naval Base 32nd Street. Um, And they had arrested... Uh, I don't know. There was maybe like six guys. There's a couple of Johns. Um, and there was a lot of like young girls rescued. But the thing is, is that on base, the age of consent is 13 years old. I'm sorry. I'm it, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, on the naval base in San Diego, California, the age of consent is 13. Yes. Time out, time out. Time and out. I'm not sure if that's for all bases okay. in California or across the U.S. because, you know, it's the setup is a lot different, but uh-huh. the age of consent is 13 years old on base. Okay. Can- and so Thursdays are typically military paydays, and that's the highest time that you will start seeing um, these young um, girls out on the street and these military members out on the prowl um, wreaking havoc to the city. Okay. So who knows how many girls were actually on base when this bus was happening. So. But hold on, can we? I need to. I need to backtrack to the thirteen thing. Um, call okay. me conservative. You know, I'm just a dad. But uh, what? Tucson, Tucson. Yeah. You you can hear, can you hear me, Tucson? I can. Okay, hold on. Let me, let me, oh, Jackie, where'd you go? You you mad at me? It's fucked mm-hmm. up. <laughs> um. <laughs> 13? 13. Who came up with that 13 rule? 13 years old. 
Yeah, who came up with that rule? Is this like a rule from 1815? Like, who came up with this rule? I have no idea where that rule on base originated from. But when you take a look at, you know, the military, the U.S. military, when they go out overseas, um, you know, and particularly like when they go into Southeast Asia, because that's where a lot of military members decide to retire and have their little vacations and whatnot, they are buying, you know, girls and boys, these, you know, children younger than 13 years old. So I'm not surprised at all that that is something that they keep in practice on their bases here in the mainland. Uh, uh, So back to what you were able to do. Yeah, it plays a big factor in what this what this was um, targeting. Um, Yeah, so the reform that I had just gotten passed at San Diego Unified was to, uh, one, get the school district to start complying with, I believe, the bill is called AB 1227. Um, My numbers could be wrong, though. But uh, that bill that was passed by the California Assembly was designed to have school districts um, begin having training for students and, like, like, you know, sex trafficking awareness within their schools. However, no school in California is actually complying with that that bill at all. And so when we take a look at San Diego and the conditions around the locale, um, that puts these students at an extremely high risk. And it's not just limited to the city, of course. It's I would say it's the entire county, right? Um, so the first thing that we did, like I did, was target the San Diego Unified. It's like this is this should not be a thing. You can't go up to a school board and be like, okay, how many children do you think is acceptable to be trafficked? How many, tell me, I want a firm number how many students you think is okay for to be trafficked. The answer should be zero. And if it's not zero, you should not be in your board member seat. No, And there should be no administrative staff within these schools, period. Um, so they were at, uh, so when I went through and started speaking with um, board member Bazo, um, when I first met her, she just got elected to her position. Um, and then she quickly rose up to the ranks and became VP of the board and then president of the board. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was really, really willing and open to um, be the, uh, to be the author of this uh, re- uh, resolution. Mm-hmm. Um because she also had experience within um, education and she had children of her own and she was like, Ooh, this is really serious. And I'm like, yeah, uh, this is really bad. So basically the reform is to begin having teachers being trained regularly on what the sex trafficking signs look like and starting to be trained on how to um, address these students without having to um you know contact cps or get the police involved we want to make as much distance between the student and those legal services as possible because in order for them to come in and help usually the actions that the state takes is often re-traumatizing for that particular survivor right so um it makes them less likely to actually rehabilitate with whatever it is that the state's trying to provide them so usually GG and, and Esperanza and Jackie, I think all of you guys work with women or maybe just people in general. I don't want to just limit it to women, people in general trying to uh, get out of being sex trafficked. Um, and Gigi makes an, a very 
interesting point right now talking about not wanting to get the state involved. What are the negative connotations to getting the state involved um, when you're trying to get someone out of uh, trafficking, especially 13-year-olds? Just real briefly, want to get removed from their families. Is that a good or bad thing in certain situations, though? Well, CPS has a history of um, family removal, mm-hmm. um, which essentially breaks families up. So even for minor infractions, they're going to remove a child from that from that space. Mm-hmm. And then the process to get the child back is extremely long. It's expensive. Uh, it's very strenuous on the family, especially if they're already in a vulnerable position, right? So then that child can end up being lost in foster care. Um, and foster care ends up being one of the most vulnerable demographics of youth, especially here in San Diego, because we have such an aggressive foster youth um, program in the entire nation. Um, it, it only continues to feed into the cycle of um institutionalized uh, violence that these youth have to experience. But, but CPS, That's one of the negatives. It, but CPS is making a, making a pivot more or less, more or less to keep people in family. Um, but, you know, Jason, there's mm-hmm. also the problem with the police arresting survivors. Um, uh, and, you know, if you look up the LA Times, I believe it was this week, they published an op-ed by two advocates who talk about why survivors should not be prosecuted, including minor survivors. So, you know, you look at like the case of Sintoya Brown, there's just so many others that, you know, they have actually been prosecuted by the state while being minors for either prostitution or for taking some form of violence against their rapists. Um, And so that's also one of the problems. You know, I think there absolutely is a critique to be made of the prison and police abolition movement, but we also know for a fact that the imperialist state uh, getting involved in, you know, sex trafficking reduction efforts, it usually always ends up in the criminalization or the persecution of the survivor themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So with what you're doing, mm. do you then have to, and we're again, we're talking about the mixed bag of nonprofits, right? Mm-hmm. How do you then forge a community, a system to help these people get out of this situation? Because you can't just go, okay, I removed you from the naval base, go run along now, right? It's not that easy. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the next step after we remove you from this horrible situation? Right. Well, the next step after that, after that removal is being able to one, have access to everything that this survivor needs Mm -hmm. in order to make a safe transition back into, you know, civilian life. Um, And so that means having a place to stay, I wouldn't suggest like a group home because, you know, again, if this person is coming out of the foster, you know, care system, we all kind of know how that goes. They're kind of set up like miniature prisons. Um, Definitely don't recommend that. So finding a way to provide housing that doesn't resemble those kind of conditions Two, they need to be able to have some type of financial assistance. They need to be able to obviously like 
have a stipend to be able to afford to not be in a vulnerable position like that again, right? Where they're not preyed upon um, by these traffickers, by abusers. Um, as well, also, you know, listening to the survivor, you know, figuring out what they want to do for, you know, um, work in order to participate in the formal economy. So maybe they want to like pick up a trade um, or think about going to college or finishing and getting their GED or whatever that case may be, even going so far as if they're willing to pursue legal action against their abusers, against their traffickers, being able to assist them and help them through that, right? Um, access to medical care because there's a lot of things mm -hmm. that happen when you're in the trade that the medical system is just not equipped to handle with appropriately. And when we think about how bad women's healthcare is already, mm -hmm. and you want to add sexual trauma on top of that, including the mental trauma that comes from those kinds of lived experiences, it, it, it's just a no. It's just a no. So being able to have specialized medical care for these um, survivors is also really essential. And also as well is to not be forcing them to go to therapy. From our perspective, you know, therapy is a must have, but you can't just force them in because it's making them seem like there's no agency in why they're there and being forced to <laughs> all these things, right? There has to be a level of getting this person their humanity back. Um, and so all of these things are necessary for a healthy transition back into, you know, civilian lifestyle. So that would be the next couple steps after the removal. So does it, does it, do you have this set up? Are you trying to get this set up where there's like maybe a facility? Yeah. So currently what we were having right now, um, because it's still in its very, very early stages. So we're still talking about like trainings and things of that nature. Um, but there's someone that I was speaking with within the district that is willing to take it a step further. And obviously she has more conversations with um, the president board member than I do. Um, so we were discussing different ways to kind of transition that. And one of the things that I had brought up, and this is something that I, you know, learned from, um, when I was in college is that their student ID cards, one, you can just have the number, the state hotline number for trafficking on the back of their card so they can call that. But the thing that I wanted to take to the next level is that one, they need to have emergency funds. So like if the event goes down and they're like, I need to go, I need to leave my situation ASAP, they need to have the money to do that. So one thing I was suggesting to them is to work with one of the banks here in San Diego, uh, preferably one of the credit unions, um, to work on getting them these hybrid um, student cards where it's also like a, a credit card, a debit card, and they'll have a fixed amount of money on there for these emergency situations, right? Um, but the thing is, is that when these students use this money, it's going to flag the district and they have to track them down within a certain amount of time to be able to get them the services that they need or to help with that removal that they need. Um, it would take a lot so of bureaucracy. It would take a lot of bureaucracy yeah, it to does, make that work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, these things do take a lot of bureaucracy um, in order to happen. Um, yeah, and then also um, being able to keep schools open um, through the winter break and through summer break in order to have, like, some form of emergency housing um, or, you know, food. I mean, they still give food over the summer, at least I would hope. Mm. Um, they're still doing that. Mm. Um, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, 
and also just to have basic like medical things especially for young girls including like you know feminine hygiene products available because that's something that's not available to us in schools so question to to you Gigi esperanza jackie mm-hmm. you know everybody everybody on the Panel. And and I'm not trying to say this in an adversarial way. I'm I'm actually asking the question. Um at what point do you try to work with the state? Because everything you're talking about is extremely expensive. It's expensive mm-hmm. to house people, it's expensive to get proper medical care. I mean, we can find volunteers here and there, but this is something that isn't an eight to five situation. This needs 24-hour care. You know, you want to fund it properly. Um, do you try to work with the state or do you try to just get the funds privately? And then also, too, it kind of runs into that problem that, you know, we were talking about earlier. And and I think we all agree that, you know, nonprofits are a mixed bag. Well, you know, if I could interject for a second, I think this is one of the reasons why, you know, we cannot just be service providers, but we have to be organizers of a militant movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and also one of the reasons why the actual revolutionary left must halt its retreat from the issue of prostitution and the sex industry. Because when the revolutionary left stopped talking about the sex industry, it was the liberal feminists and the NGOs that swooped in. And now they are the only ones leading this fight. And look at what they do. For example, look at FOSTA SESTA that took down Backpage. There was not even a consideration of the demand that the wealth generated off of our bodies um, would be given back to us in some form of survivor funds or healthcare or housing or reparations or anything. So, you know, that's like, why, what's the point of arresting those people, of seizing mm-hmm. their assets and not redistributing it back to the people who they stole it from in the first place? And that's why, you know, these movements for greater services must be connected to a militant movement that is willing to hold the ruling class and their state accountable and make these demands of them. I also, you know, do not believe that we will be able to achieve this, like, harmonious world where survivors are given everything we need as long as the current capitalist ruling class remains in power. And that's why I think it needs to be an antagonistic movement against them, um, along with, you know, demanding more services and, and things like that. How do you handle that duality of being antagonistic to the people that you probably need to get funds from? Well, um, you mean, do you mean like in terms of politicians? Polit- fund rate funders? I mean, you, we're being antagonist to a system, you know, not just politicians um, in a vacuum, right? And it, it, I'm, I'm asking the question because it's hard. I think we all walk this tightrope. And I think you're, you're speaking to a certain moment right now where, where the left is still young and burgeoning. And there's a lot of absolutism, right? There's a lot of, well, if you do this, then you are fed, then you're bad. If you do this, then this is bad. And we kind of have to work within a lot of things that we may not agree with wholeheartedly, right? We, we, we may have to work with the government if there's a grant they're giving out where we could get land, you know, so we can have the facility 
we may have to work with a nonprofit. We don't like nonprofits if we can, you know, get money to fund the project. And this is coming from someone that's worked inside there with, you know, my own goals, right? That are probably very similar to your goals. But it's hard to work within that system because there is a dance you have to, to do and sometimes we lose. So I'm, I'm just asking the question about the, the dance that, that needs to be done because this is a you know transformative project that, that Gigi is talking about undertaking, undertaking that would be massive, right? Even on a small level, even if she just did it in national city that could reverberate through just the state yeah well i mean i think that you know these people in power don't concede because we're friends with them or because we're nice to them they concede mm -hmm. because you force them to mm -hmm. and at the end of the day you know i think that's what we need to do I, but i also you know i mean look at the history of the u.s it's not it's not going to become some social democracy you know i mean not even bernie could get elected um, and then even our so-called social Democrats in Congress, like AOC, are over here breaking strikes, you know, right before huge environmental disasters like uh, what happened in Ohio. So personally, I think trying to hold out for some magical social democracy uh, that our supposed leaders are going to give us, I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, and I also don't think that they're going to give us anything because we're nice to them, because that's not give. what moves them. But it's not about give. It's about playing politics right give and playing politics are two totally different things no one's saying that you know we're cute enough to get free stuff it's just the art of playing that game right you know i'm not disagreeing that you know power conceives nothing with a, without a demand I, of course we all have to have a demand there's an ask gg is laying out a massive ask right how do we get the ask met because we can't do everything with a hammer we have to be able to play politics in some way. How do we, and we're, I'm having the conversation so we can figure this out. I'm not trying to say, I know the way and you're wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm just asking the question. So I think can... it requires, if, if I can, inter if I can yeah. interject, I think it requires a kind of uh, dual strategy in that you have to have movement cadre who are willing to organize on the ground to get a kind of consensus of working class folk to support you know your political agenda as radical as you want it to be but you also have to be able to put pressure on political actors within the machine the political machine to agree to the political demands that your mass movement are, are putting forward so it's got to be a kind of duality a kind of like a i hate to use the term inside outside game but it's got to be a, a, a dual function I think part of the problem we've had with this contemporary manifestation of what's called the left is that it's rooted in believing that all you have to do is elect a few social democrats and everything will be fine, which I agree with Esperanza is a, is a dead-end strategy mm -hmm. because you end up doing nothing but becoming uh, dependent on you know the Democratic Party to resolve your issues and their, their, their allegiances to the, you know, the left flank of capital always. But at the same time... Uh, we still have to find a way to create an organizational consensus amongst large segments of working people enough to create a real movement, not a hashtag, not a Twitter hashtag, not something cute that you can we can find on YouTube, but transformative enough where 
municipalities, on local levels, on, on state levels, on city levels, on national levels, are feeling the pressure of constituents who are making demands in a way that they can resonate. You know, one of our guests on our show we've had several times is a gentleman named Daniel Bessner, and he makes the argument that mass politics is dead because his position is that the capacity of mass politics to force the ruling class to concessions has not really existed in the contemporary moment. And mm -hmm. the reason I'm a little hesitant to do that is that I, I find that the reactionary right uses mass politics with some level of effect in terms of getting their cadre to get, you know, reaction from their political their political representatives. So all of this at the same time makes me think about how do we do this, right, when we don't have the advantage that other aspects or historical manifestations of the left had, i.e. a counter-hegemon like the Soviet Union that provided an ideological pressure point to Western capitalism to force concessions, which made things like, you know, not only the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, but a lot of movements in the new left period possible. We don't have that kind of counter-hegemon as well. So these are all considerations that need to be made. Are we in a period where mass politics really serves no particular utility? Well, let's let's go back to Gigi, who actually uh, had to do some some work with even on the local level. Uh, Gigi, how were you able to get politicians to listen to you? Uh, yeah, that wasn't really that was actually a little bit hard. Um, just getting in contact with them was difficult because they all had these automated emails that you can't really get through, and like everyone in the district has those kinds of responses. So, you know, send that introductory email like, hey, you know, my name's Gigi, I'm local to San Diego, blah, 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 whatever, you know, I wanna to talk to you about, you know, the sex trafficking crisis in San Diego, like can you schedule a time to meet, blah, blah, blah. And then you immediately get hit with, um, oh, you know, ex board member is, you know, uh, will receive this email at whatever time. So it was really, kind of based on luck that they even responded and if they were even willing to listen to you because at the time that I started this project a lot of them were uh, getting voted off uh, um, yeah it was their time so they weren't really that interested in responding to any type of emails they were just kind of writing out their terms um, but I did get lucky obviously with the board member who did respond back to me because look at where she started and where she is now so like I picked a good target um, to at least author the resolution. Um, but in that meeting itself, after I was able to break through that barrier, it really came down to having to show how serious the problem is. And like, you really can't deny, at least in, in my locale, in my city, like you can't deny those kinds of numbers. And this is something that I also express because um, you know, the San Diego Tribune is also writing about this. You have people from the community that are also submitting op-eds to um, the San Diego Tribune saying, like, we all know that this is a problem and we don't feel like we feel disempowered to do anything about it. We don't know how to address this issue. So, like, what is the city planning on doing to stop this? That doesn't, you know, put anyone else in harm. 
Um, and so once I really laid it out for them and told them, like, listen, like, I am part of this city. My family has been part of this city. Like, we have been here for decades. And I, for one, can sit here and express how the military has completely disparaged my family and our relationship to each other just for, like, material breadcrumbs that the state can offer. Like, and imagine what that kind of predatory system can be doing to people who are not even engaged in military like that, people who are more vulnerable and susceptible to that um, kind of entity. And think about also, you know, the effect that that has on, like, the school district. If you're not being able to retain schools, how are you going to be getting your funding? You have to be able to talk to them in dollars as well. Um, and, again, I did have to play, you know, I wanted this to be – like you were saying earlier, this can make a shockwave through the state that can make a shockwave through the nation. And, you know, if you're a budding politician who just like had some recent come up, that sounds really good to you. You want to be that person who's going to lead that forward. So it really comes down to having to pick your target and really understanding um, how, like in what ways that they're able to help. Um and so that's that's really how that relationship kind of went back and forth. And, you know, it was nice because they were able to actually voice that they weren't capable of solving this problem. Like they were like, you know, whatever it is that you feel like is the best way to go around um, passing this resolution and having this resolution in practice in the district. Like, we're going to leave that to you. Like, we will do all the work. You just tell us what you want us to do. And I'm like, okay. Sounds great. What happened? And I know this is <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> Finish your thought, Gigi. I'm sorry. And then okay. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say, and you know, I I would say I really did get lucky with the hand that I was dealt and when the timing of it all when I started that campaign because it was like an election year and all of these people are getting shuffled around. Um, so it can play a big part in their campaigns. But, you know, in other locales, I know trying to do something like that is going to be really difficult based on, like, um, the kind of political climate that's in their city. Yeah, and I just wanted to respond to you, Pascal, but I think that we need to give up this idea that the United States will ever become this nice social democracy. Um, it's just not, uh, you know, the contradictions continue intensifying with, you know, climate change worsening. I mean, things are not getting better in the United States. And we need to give up this pipe dream that, you know, we'll be able to make the American capitalist system work for us. We will never be able to do that. And when we try to, we are brutally repressed. This country, you know, brutally represses people who peacefully try to make things better. And for that reason, I think that, you know, it is not, uh, you know, it is not realistic for us to sit here and ask, like, how can we, you know, build social democracy in the U.S.? The real question has to be, how can we work towards the goal of actually overthrowing our ruling class and its state and implementing something far better? And that is often painted as this unrealistic goal but in my mind, I mean, there's nothing more unrealistic than thinking that this brutal, repressive system will ever allow people to take power in it. I mean, again, it's... My response to that is simply is that if we can't even convince people to demand social democracy, 
What makes you think you're going to convince people to actually revolt against the system when they like the system so well that they don't even want to ask for anything from it? Well, so I, um, so when I say that, I'm not saying that, you know, it's impossible for us to organize, you know, the people, like the exploited classes in the U.S. around these demands. But I'm saying that the people who currently hold the power, the minority of capitalists and their lackeys, their running dogs, are not going to meet our demands uh, without force. And even then, as, you know, they will always uh, attempt to do things to, you know, you know, take the struggle away from us, for example, implementing social democracy to prevent socialism, things like that. So, yeah, I, I do. I don't disagree yeah. with that. I don't, I don't think yeah. I'm making the argument at all that I'm expecting that America is going to become some kind of utopian paradise if we organize a movement to get, you know, universal health care, free college for all and everything is fine. I, that's not my position at all. This is a capitalist country. It's, you know, it's based on imperialism. I get that. But again, my, my position, as I stated, is that, you know, the ultimate reality for me is that on the way to make this the envisioned society we want, we still can force the status quo to provide the needs of our people better than it is doing already. We've had over 50 years of neoliberalism cannibalizing the economy of this country, where we're in a position now where even people who were educated, who traditionally would have been proximate to the petite bourgeois professional managerial class, or have been downwardly mobile for you know pretty much a decade. And what the reality is is that that sense of precarity, particularly post-COVID, is going to force people to challenge if they are properly politically educated the way things work. The question I'm asking is that can we mobilize people enough to take that dissatisfaction with the way thing with, with the way things work to put pressure on the status quo? That doesn't mean that I'm expecting the status quo to give us roses and candy and chocolate <laughs> and say everything is wonderful now. We gave you some health care and free college. What I'm saying is that on the way to making our society what we are envisioning it to be as I'm sure you have an envisionment an envision of what you want society to be as I'm sure I, as I do as we all do we still want to get policy that changes the lives of our people if we just simply say well we're never going to get anything because capitalism is horrible then why even fight you know if if we if we if, if, we're, if we're going to say the only thing that's going to change this place is revolution then right now the only thing we need to be talking about is getting guns Arming people, putting people in military hardware, getting rid of the train to challenge the state. Because everything else is spurious. I mean, your gun isn't going to stop a drone. I don't disagree with that either. You Sadly. should have a plan, not just guns. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, here's a gun. Good luck, buddy. Step Got one, get Walmart. guns. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> well, and I think it's important to situate ourselves on a in, on the globe, right? Like we are in the imperial core. I think this is why it's so important. This is why I bring up Lenin. This is why it's important that we study theory, that we study history, that we look to the peripheries because we're in the belly of the beast here, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the contradictions need to be heightened to the utmost to get people riled up. So we must look to the peripheries. We must look to the global south that already have 
um, have had successful movements, successful socialist projects, socialist projects in the works currently. We need to look to those projects for, I think this is an issue also of the Western left is like, we, we kind of exist in this vacuum of the Western left. And it's like, we, we exist on, on a, on a global, in a global world. And, in, in, and we need to look towards the winds, towards the history. We need to look at the theory. And this is why it's, this is why I bring up Lenin mm -hmm. in 2023. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, these are all things that we, we talk about constantly, but you know, I, there's a, there's a, a modern context in which I think sometimes our enthusiasm and ideological zeal can overlook. And that is we are in a moment where we do not have workers unions in large sectors of this country, the South in general, petrol, everything we're, we're talking on, the rubber and plastic we're talking on all needs oil. The majority of that industry is a non-unionized. You want to talk about the Philippines? The majority of that labor is extracted from places like the Philippines and Southeast Asia, right? On American soil. The Philippines, if I'm not mistaken, their GDP is based around their export of labor, and they're not the only country in the South Pacific where that happens. I understand, yeah. you, know, you know, that we should be cognizant of movements because we we need to see what victories look like because there is a defeatist nature that I think you guys are speaking to and I agree with that but yeah I, and I wanted ahead, sorry. Go to ahead. Go ahead. sorry no no no, no go. I, I was going to ask you this question Gigi I, I want to oh, pose okay, I do want to pose this question to you what happens okay. when Gigi hooks up with a city council member that becomes an assemblyman that becomes possibly uh, a state assembly person that possibly becomes a mayor that possibly becomes governor, et cetera, et cetera. What happens if the signature legislation that that person wants to hang their hat on is the anti-sex trafficking legislation and Esperanza's posse is part of putting implementing influencing that legislation and building out some sort of social democracy for this segment of society that you're trying to help immediately again it's that duality how do you work within that paradigm that's, that's the question i'm asking like seriously Oh, I don't know. You could probably ask, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. that same question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the answer right there. That's the answer. I don't have to repeat that. We all know how that went. We mm. all know how that went. We know the legacy of how that was, you know, perverted by neoliberalism and the rise of the right wing. Um, but I did want to speak on the fact about this defeatism because it does play large in part to what this is because it plays into the polarization that creates this, um, you know, black and white picture of getting, you know, being able to actually radically change the material conditions that you're living in. Okay. Um, so, you know, I wanted to bring up the point that we are here in the United States geopolitically isolated. And when we think about all of the 
um, propaganda conditioning that we are subjected to from the day that we're born about this nation and the violence that we conduct overseas. When we think about challenging the state, we're thinking, you know, the immediate effect is this, this is what the state can do back to us. Now, going back to us being geopolitically isolated, who's going to come in and help us? If we need that assistance, which, you know, we'd be going up against the the biggest empire I think the world has ever seen at this stage. Um, And that's daunting. And that's incredibly daunting. And that's the whole part of, you know, being an organizer is being able to negate those fears with, you know, the real goal is, well, would there, you know, um, continuously be subjected to this humiliating lifestyle of just having constant exploitative um, labor um, and, you know, feudal living conditions um, and just be comfortable grinding your way, like grinding your life out like that. Or, you know, do you want to die on your feet trying? Mm-hmm. I personally would live and die by my principles. I would rather die on my feet, you know, than having to have my head bowed down to the state, like a thousand percent. And that's the kind of energy that you need to be able to install in the masses when you're speaking to them about this, you know, revolution. Because ultimately, when we start talking about like, well, what do we do to move them? How do we get the like, how do we get the masses to commit to, you know, revolting against the state, which we can all sit here and admit is not to be peaceful. Any historical moment has been surrounded by violence. It's the fight over capital. It's the fight over humanity. And that is something that is installed by patriarchy is the fight of dominance of one over the other. And so when we are trying to organize them around this revolution, that is the, that is the passion, that is the, you know, discipline that needs to be instilled. And it does come through theory, um, theory building, training, um, ideological struggle um, and things of that nature. But ultimately that's what it's going to have to take because we're already living in extremely violent times already. Inflation is all like almost a hundred percent. We're seeing astronomical in like astronomically insane rent increases. We cannot have any access to healthcare. Our healthcare system's already broken to begin with. We're not getting our voices heard in this democracy that we're being forced to participate and support with our labor. What else do you have left to lose? Oh, you, you want to go buy a pair of Jordans or the new PS5 or you want to part- keep participating in this consumerism. And that consumerism is something that has been instilled in you by the state so mm-hmm. that you are continuously to be dependent on it as well as, you know, more likely to continue to support it through your labor. Never underestimate. There is more to li- the, never underestimate that. The power, never underestimate the power of Jordans, Gigi. Don't, oh, ever, <laughs> don't ever underestimate but hey and, and i'm and i'm you know i i agree with what you're saying i i just understand and i get frustrated at it and maybe that's why i like talking to you guys because i get so frustrated that i feel like you know um a negative nelly because um i don't underestimate the power of jordan's and when I say that, I don't even, it doesn't have to be this, the consumerist aspect of it. I mean, we're living in a moment um, where people are very comfortable with being billboards. Influencer culture is ultimately saying, I want to be a generic billboard. I will watch ads. You know, breaking through, 
healthcare doesn't matter anymore to a lot of people. It really doesn't. Oh yeah, it's new age capitalist branding. You know, th- think think about. Oh, I'm sorry. First and foremost, Esperanza, thank you so much for for hanging with us. I understand that thank you, you have a, a prior engagement and you have to go. But if I find out you just got to go to the gym for massive gains, we might find. <laughs> no, I, I'm not going to the gym. But I just wanted to thank you, Jason and Pascal, for having me on. And just the last thing I want to say is that you know I think that one of the core disagreements that we need to work out on the left is whether we see the state as a neutral entity where we can win or use to win or whether we see the state as an instrument of class repression. And I believe the state is an instrument of class repression. Um, But regardless, I appreciate you both for having us on and Mm -hmm. look forward to hearing the rest of the conversation when I'm done. Absolutely. Always interesting. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Have a good rest of your day. Jackie, and you have to go as well. I have a fundraiser to go to with. Uh, oh my that, goodness! Raffles and raffles, I can't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you very much, Jackie. Gigi, thank you as well. I'm glad we got your mm-hmm. your your uh, audio fix. Uh, don't hang up just yet, Gigi. Um, I'm, I'll wrap it. Don't hang up just yet, Gigi. So thank you, Bye, Jackie. Jackie. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. Thank you. As we as we assume, Pascal and Tucson, we knew it was going to be a good show. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Interesting ideological conversation. Um, you know, I don't know. Can the state be both? Can it be? The an state asset? is both. I think that's the state yeah. is a tool of oppression. I think the state is malleable that it can be. It, it can grant reforms, but I think ultimately the state is subservient to the needs of capital. Yes, yes, we all agree with that. I think we agree more than we disagree. I just, you know, these are, you know, deep issues. And my frustration comes from people just being, you know, super quick to throw, you know, catch-all phrases on everything and try to hashtag it away. You know, if we just defund the police, then, you know, black kids stop getting killed. It's like, that's not, it's not that simple. Yeah, It's not that simple. But that being said, we had a very busy week. I will be putting that show back up that YouTube pulled down from yesterday that Tucson and I had so much fun doing. What else? Movie night. Thank you, guys. I wanted to record it. I effed up and didn't get to record that again. But if you were there, you have it in your memory camera. Wait, Gigi's out? She, she's. Don't worry about where Gigi is. I'm sorry. Oh, Hold on. Let's, let's do this one thing before she goes. Gigi, are you still there? Yeah. Okay, Gigi, how awesome. can how can we get involved? There's people that were literally messaging. I have a, I think they just left. There was a San Diegan in my house a second ago. Our live show producer, Jordan, uh, lives in San Diego. She was like, how can I get involved? How can I help? I This seems really interesting. This is, this is stuff I want to do. What do people have to do to get involved with Gigi? Oh, I mean, you all can always reach out to me on Instagram. Um, I don't. I obviously can't put shit in the chat right now. So. You can you can text it to me and I'll and I'll put it. In. Okay, I'll text it to you. Yeah, definitely reach out to me on Instagram. Uh, definitely rallying the community right now. So if you're trying to get involved, let me know. We can like we'll figure something out and figure out how to combat um, this issue that's plaguing the city. 
All right, Gigi. Well, Excellent. thank you again. Don't hang up just yet. I, I want to holler okay. at you real quick. We don't hang up just yet. So thank you very Alrighty. much. That was Gigi. Text me that text me that Instagram handle so we can put it in the chat and then on the on the comments of the show. So wherever you're watching, listening to the show, there will be links to Gigi's Instagram so you can hook up with her. They're still putting the organization together. I know that um, the new organization that they're in. So I know there was some talk about um, the name as well. So. Toussaint Pascal has been a busy week. It has been. Oh, my goodness. We did so much. Word. Are you ready to uh, shut it down for a little bit? Word. I'm a, I'm a guest in a little bit. In, the, in a few hours, I'll be a guest on the popular show. Who does the popular show? David Slavic and um, I forget the other dudes. The British guy. <laughs> They're going to yell at me right now. When I go mm-hmm. on the British guy. Eh? <laughs> Is that all I am to you? Is that all I am to you? Yes. Someone who eats fish and chips. Love fish and chips. Spot a tea. Spot a tea. Just remember, whenever we tease British people, Gene feels too comfortable to tease black people. (laughs) We all live in a yellow submarine. A yellow submarine. A yellow submarine. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining me. I'm going to get off this and get ready for another appearance. And hopefully I'll have that piece up next week that I'll be writing. Thank you guys. And we are out. That too.